we are up and running on episode five, the last in this very special season of The Rundown. We're bringing you all the best from Milan, where our roving Monocle 24 team have been all week, sampling the best of Salone del Mobile and speaking to the design denizens that matter. We'll be crossing to our team in just a moment so they continue with more of the same. I'm your host, Robert Bound, and every day on the program, I've taken you on a guided tour of one of Milan's best running routes. Today, we sign off our series with a no-nonsense 15-kilometer canal side workout. We'll be taking a breather on Route 2, of course, to sample the city's unique cultural and design offering. Plus, who's dropping in to chat with the Rundown team at Nike Space on Via Orobia? You'll find out in just a moment. That's all coming up here on The Rundown on Monocle 24. Before we tackle that run alongside Navilio Grande, however, let's cross to a well-known voice by now this week. It's Marcus Hippie for all the stories you need to know today. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Milan. And once again here at Nike's Exhibition in Space, I'm joined by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule. Welcome to the programme. Saloni is coming to an end soon. How would you rate this year's Saloni? You've done, what, probably 20 or so Salonis so far. Yeah, which is, yeah, which is quite a number. Uh, I think thought that the, there was a, a bit of a realism, uh, a, a bit of maybe sort of moving away from sort of all of the, the happy talk about emerging markets. I, I felt sort of for the last five or six years, there's been this sort of perhaps almost grasping uh, nature when you talk to a lot of, of CEOs and brand owners, Marcus, who are saying, oh, we're putting, you know, a lot of, you know, we're really interested in, you know, in, in the big cities in China. We're really interested in what's happening with the Middle East. What I've been hearing uh, when I've been talking to companies, let's not forget the United States. The U.S. is the world's biggest economy, and that is where we are seeing double-digit growth. Germany, uh, one of the world's you know, top five economies, that is where we're, we're seeing growth and we're putting emphasis. So this is uh, maybe a little bit getting back to basics, maybe focusing on markets as well, which people had forgotten because they got so excited about China and, and Russia. And, and actually, those are two markets which you, uh, you've only been really hearing about them in the negative, negative growth, and just the fact that uh, they've, they've really been, been drying up. So overall, and, you know, and that all said, a really good mood, I, I felt. Um, it, we, we have a, a, we're going to be doing a big interview with, uh, with Rosanna Orlandi. And a lot of um, that interview, I was chatting to her about... Uh, you know, a number of things, but one was just this legacy. We have to remember that it was a year ago that this city was <clears throat> gearing up, of course, for the, the launch of, of Expo. And I was saying, you know, what has it meant from a legacy perspective for the city? And, you know, and, and I think the feeling is it's, it's been a very, it's a good legacy. Uh, and, and that is still hanging around in, in the ether. I think when you, when you are out on the streets of the city, there's a sense, Marcus, uh, that there's a new vitality, uh, which goes beyond just a big fair like Salone coming into town and then everyone sort of flying off afterwards, but that there is a, a metabolism which, which continues to live on here. Well, Salone can be a great opportunity for young designers who get to show what they actually can create and what kind of ideas you have. Could you pick any names from here, something that you would have liked? I can't point to let's say, young names, uh, but I can, I can look at some of the establishments, certainly. Uh, I saw some great work, uh, a really fantastic uh, table that, uh, that Christophe Pierre did uh, for, for Lema, which I thought was nice. Uh, and one company which is, let's say, not core to maybe the, the Salone story, 
Um, but there's a brand called Society, and Society is a textile company. Uh, they have a wonderful showroom in uh, in Brera, and uh, and they're part of the Lemonta Group. And I think this is a really interesting company to, to watch when it comes to what they do for, for beds, what they, they do for, for tabletops, etc. Just this amazing sense of color. Uh, and maybe as, you know, I think obviously it's a time of year, also when probably a lot of our listeners are, are looking at their terraces, uh, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, and thinking, okay, you know, what do I want to do with, with my garden this summer? Uh, I'm thinking about having some sort of, you know, uh, doing some great entertaining. Uh, and that was, that's just a company which I've just been, been following a little bit and, and watching what they're doing. Uh, and I would just say over, Overall, probably, again, not a new name, but I think that uh, the work that Bjarke Ingels has been doing with Artemide, the lighting company, he's uh, launched something called Alphabet. And recently, uh, we did a story uh, about your, well, not your hometown, your sort of semi-adopted hometown of, of Helsinki, Marcus, about Helsinki's great neon light tradition uh, and how the, the, the wonderful neon lights of, of Helsinki are, are, are so important. Um, to the Finnish capital. And it was interesting because also neon lights have gone slightly out of fashion. And so Bjarke Ingels as an architect has been figuring out how could he do something with you know, being able to clamp letters on the front of buildings in a beautiful font. And he's de designed this almost Lego style uh, modular system of, of lighting uh, with the Artemidia engineers. And I think that was one of the, the more clever projects uh, that, uh, that I've seen on display so far. And just finally, Tyler, before I let you go, I think it's been interesting that, for example, Nike has presence here at Saloni. You, we, you would easily think that Saloni is all about furniture, only furniture. But do you think it's gradually getting a wider appeal and you see surprising businesses coming here? Y yes, and, and I think it's, it's not new that we've seen car companies, airlines, uh, bicycles, you know, all kinds of people wanting to be part of this design story. But I think oftentimes there is a huge disconnect where you've seen companies come into Milan and you think, okay, yeah, I, I get that there's a design process. Uh, in, and, but you're thinking, you know, do you really need to be in Milan? Shouldn't you be at a car show? Shouldn't you be at an, at an aircraft exhibition or something else? But I think uh, now companies are understanding both from a, a B2B to their direct clients, they need to be showing a, a more direct relationship uh, between what is going on here from an industrial design point of view, um, and they need to do it for the end consumer. So I think Nike's done a, a very good job at that, uh, and and you know there there are a number of other other businesses as well. And I think this is good for the city because what it does then it you you start to create some other types of satellites. Uh, and you know to me, I think one of the great things about being in this space. Uh, you know where we you know we, we set up shop uh, at at the start of the week on on Monday, is this is not just a design story. This is about reurbanization. This is about activating people. It's about getting them out on the streets. It's about the relationship between neighborhoods. So I think in terms of an evolution of also what Salone can do, how does it deliver an urbanism message as well? I think that's a positive. Thanks, Tyler. And up next, we hear from one of the designers who collaborated with Nike for the Nature of Motion exhibition here at Salone. In the course of this week, we have spoken to designers who have come up with something practical, but now we are going to go to the other extreme. British furniture designer Max Lam has created something that definitely won't have immediate practical applications. His installation features levitating blocks of material, including a block of granite weighing thousands of kilos. Let's hear from Max himself. 
Well, the project is a, f a bit of an anomaly, really, for me. I consider myself a furniture designer, a product designer, an industrial designer. Those are kind of the, the terms that I normally apply to, uh, to when describing myself. What I've created are three lumps of material. In fact, I've created very little. In fact, I've not really done anything. On, on the face of it, I've done nothing other than stick some air hoses in three blocks of raw material. They're all raw materials that I use regularly in my work. Um, I'm known for using expanded polystyrene in my work. I'm known for using stone, a lot of stone in my work. Uh, and metals is a kind of an ongoing theme in my work as well. So essentially, I took three blocks of raw material, materials that I use in my practice. They are representative of my work, mm -hmm. but I've done very little to them. I'm just trying to celebrate the purest form of those materials. So we have stone. We have uh, specifically granite. Yeah. We have aluminium. And we have expanded polystyrene. And I think you should explain the process and the thinking behind this now. So you got a phone call from Portland, like you asked you to collaborate with them. And what happened then? What happened then? I uh, visited Portland. Uh, at that stage, the, the brief was very loose. There were some words flying around, quite literally. <laughs> and I, yes, yeah, so I visited Portland and tried to kind of, I suppose, digest it. I'm, I'm much better at focusing on an idea and on a project when I'm trapped in it. Uh, and I think while I was in Portland, I was trapped in it. I was living and breathing Nike, uh, walking around uh, Nike town, the, the campus. Um, there is just in one place next to the golf pavilion, there is this fountain. It's a granite sphere floating on a very thin film of water which is continuously rotating. In fact, I think it actually functions as a compass. Uh, it has, a, it has a, a north. So you can rotate this thing, and it, it, I don't know what it weighs, maybe two tons, but it, it ro rotates around on this very thin film of water, but always ends up finding north again. So uh, that was, I suppose, in a way, the first time when I thought about objects that move. And most of my work is very static. It's furniture. It sits in one place. Yes, we, a, a person using it might move a chair to get in and out of it. But otherwise, it's a very static thing. And I like the idea of creating something that has a motion to it and that is somehow very easy to move, yet uh, inconceivable that it can. I think it's interesting what kind of designers Nike has picked to collaborate with? Was it clear for you that you would say yes to this offer? And what was it you wanted to achieve and get it from that yourself? I suppose Nike are a very sort of aspirational company. Uh, and I, I wanted, like when they first contacted me, I didn't know what the whole ethos of the project was. I didn't really know what I was going to be asked of me. But I think um, sort of having a very you know, small understanding of what Nike are, uh, what they represent, this idea of high performance, this idea of maximizing the, the potential of, of a human being in athletic terms, uh, really sort of emphasizing the, the, the potential of the human body in general. It's kind of sort of trying to recreate that sense of nakedness whilst protecting the body. And I just I love that idea of high performance. And so I needed very little convincing in being invited to do this. 
And also, I mean, bearing in mind that they're a company that's a sportswear brand. They're not a furniture company. They're not. They're not a product. Well, they're product design, but not specifically furniture design. And so, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm sure. Surely, they're not going to be asking me to design footwear. Yeah. So, you know, maybe I can open my open my mind to this uh, and just see see what happens. It was a very liberating experience mm -hmm. because it's something completely new for me. That was British designer Max Lam. A bit later in this program, we will speak to Lindsay Adelman, who has created a vibrating chandelier. But before that, it's back to Robert Bound in the London studio, who is going to take you through today's running route. We are headed to Navilio Grande. Thanks, Marcus, and we'll have more from our team at Saloni and meet more guests in the Nike space at Via Orobia later on in the show. Running time now, though, and it's the last one this week. The best moment to strike out along Navilio Grande is on the weekend, so we've got the timing just right for today. 2016 marks the 55th edition of Salone. In recent years, much of the buzz surrounding the event has migrated to city neighbourhoods. The first Fuore Salone events popped up in the Zona Tortona district that sits next to the Navilio Grande, where, if you're following Route 5, you'll be heading west towards the city limits. The neighbourhood is a mix of creative industries from fashion to design. It's home too to innovative Italian publishing house Coraini. At their bookstore in Via Savona, they promote the best in graphic design and illustration with titles from new and old masters and they've carved themselves a niche in the field of children's books too. And we sat down with owner Pietro Coraini to hear more. We are a publishing house, and that's why we open a bookstore. But uh, we are kind of a strange publishing house, uh, like the neighborhood is uh, in between uh, stuff. Uh, we do children's book, uh, artist book, uh, graphic design book, design books, uh, and all all the work started uh, with my parents uh, and the collaboration with uh, Bruno Munari. That was the one that. Um, involved uh, my parents in the love uh, for the book uh, as a design object, not just uh, as a container for something else. So they started to do a small book, uh, reprint of old Munari book, uh, and then little by little uh, we started looking for new things, uh, for new books, new projects, new, new authors. This is a book uh, made by this author, uh, William Fondriska. He's a well-known uh, graphic designer from the 70s uh, that works in New York in the United States. And he made uh, books for her daughter. And it's called All By Myself. And the text is not about the story of a little girl looking around and uh, trying, but it's just a list of uh, things uh, that uh, her daughter can do. Once uh, there was a little girl named Alison who could do many things by herself. I can watch an ant, blow a horn, hold a leaf, listen to the train, and is kind of a big list of things, uh, some simple, and uh, it finished where she can uh, fly a jet plane, uh, drive a rocket to the moon, and all with her. Uh, uh, strong graphic design thing. So he's kind of uh, trying to involve uh, the kids uh, in the book uh, in, a, in a different way. 
Staying in the area around the Navili, we now venture over to the studio of Giulio Iacchetti. The Milan-based industrial designer has used his prodigious imagination to reinterpret everything from sofas to city manhole covers. Besides his collaborations with well-known design brands, he's been active for the past four years putting together his own brand, Interno Italiano. Iacchetti works directly with a network of artisans who are often contracted by the bigger, well-known manufacturers to create pieces. With over a dozen products already for sale, each made by a workshop that specialises in a particular craft, the strategy is to cut the showrooms and middlemen often found in the industry out and return to a simpler idea of industrial design. And here's Giulio to tell us more. I picked this place to open my design studio because I visited this area along the Naviglio Canal in the past on my bicycle and I found that it could be an ideal spot to both work and live. Also, nearby there are some good restaurants, so we're able to work, have a beautiful garden, and it feels like you aren't even in Milan. And inside this studio, Interno Italiano was created. Interno Italiano is a design brand started four years ago by myself and my wife Silvia. It represents a collaboration, a partnership with Italian artisan craftsmen who work with us and who are co-authors in our projects to create a vision, beautiful ideas for the home by Interno Italiano with recognisable functional objects with expressive forms. They are the custodians of this very Italian ability to transform raw materials These pieces come from the many artisan manufacturing districts in Italy, which is another fantastic characteristic of Italy. Up and down the peninsula there are places that are linked to the production of a specific item via their traditional skills and know-how, which has been built up over time, to make the pieces that are created by designers. In the case of Interno Italiano, it was just me at the start, designing, but now there are many talented young designers working as we expand the Interno Italiano collection. The founding fathers of Italian design, and I'm referring specifically to the great maestros of the post-war period, Castiglioni, Mari, Sotsas, etc., had an approach that I've always found to be wonderful. For them, there was no distinction between aesthetics and ethics. This idea hails from the classical world. The separation of these two values has created a disaster, because for me personally, it's not possible to separate an ethical approach from our approach to making something that is aesthetically pleasing. Both need to coincide. The Interno Italiano project is based principally on this concept. Ethics and aesthetics can't be separated. By ethical, I mean to primarily recognise the authorship of the work done by the artisans, indicating their name, where they work and live, who they are, because to negate this essential part of creating something, and most importantly its provenance, wouldn't be a very ethical approach. This year at Salone, among the items we have, we're presenting a pair of scissors designed by Alessandro Stabile for Interno Italiano and created in the Italian manufacturing district of Primana near Lecco that specialises in making scissors. With them, we've happened collaborated to create a pair of scissors that are aesthetically pleasing and ethical in the way they are manufactured. When people see the variety of objects in my work, they ask me where I find my inspiration, what's my creative process. I would love to tell them there's a particular thinking, mental process to how I generate new ideas, but it's not like that. The work of a designer is not based in some romantic idea of spending a lot of time in contemplation or staring at a blank piece of paper before coming up with a great idea. I find that my method is by continuously drawing, repeating the form over and over, and revisiting my sketches the next day. And in the middle of all these designs, that may seem all the same, I notice a certain point of variation, a refinement, an idea that begins to take shape, and I work to clean it up. Disregard that which doesn't work. It's not very romantic, very poetic, but being a designer is essentially about doing this.
It's very much about hard work. To see Interno Italiano's collection of furniture and stationery, be sure to visit their display in Via Palermo Uno on the first floor, which is part of the lineup of brands exhibiting this year in the Brera Design District. And that's Route 5 for you on the rundown, wrapping up a week of city runs and cultural and design highlights. For the last time this season, let's recap. Route 5 distance, 15 kilometers. Weekends are ideal or after work. A route highlight, if you're heading back to Milan later, is to visit the antiques market hosted in the Navaglio Grande area on the last Sunday of the month. Today's Nike Plus Run Club tip, there are several pedestrian bridges that cross the canal along the route if you're in the mood for some quick cardio work on the stairs. And to run further, extend your run to Trezzano before turning back. You're on the rundown here on Monocle 24 with me, Robert Bound. For the final time in this all-too-short season, I'm passing the baton back to Marcus Hippie. Marcus, it's over to you one last time. Thanks, Rob. Well, I've got quite something for you over here in Milan now. As I know you love chandeliers, I thought you would get a kick out of a light installation by American designer Lindsay Adelman. For Nike's exhibition here at Via Orobia, she has created a chandelier that vibrates. I let her explain. So these two pieces, the first one looks like um, an overscale chandelier, but it's very plant-like and branch-like. I almost see it looking like a live oak tree at the top and Spanish moss hanging off of it at the bottom with these delicate chains. And then at the end of every chain is a bare light bulb in various sizes. And then there's a light bulb at the end of every branch. And then the single... um, bulb on the other fixture is with a chain that's tethered to the to a base um, a weight at the base and so one is quite minimal and one is a little bit more elaborate and um, yeah and people are surprised with the shaking exactly the shaking I've been standing here next to it for quite some time trying to figure out when it shakes and why it shakes but I just learned it's it's automated <laughs> yes <laughs> mm-hmm. and the why is yeah you, you know that's up to you <laughs> what kind of a task was it to start collaborating with Nike and and try to think of what you would like to do with lights for them yeah it was really fun I feel like they gave me complete creative freedom but also it brought out a different side of my work so it's different than my normal job which is usually to create a chandelier for a client so thinking about something for myself and then thinking about something that incorporated this element of movement changed um, how I went about the piece so I've never done a piece like this before where I have all of these sort of like loose limp (laughs) limbs hanging down and I wanted to use just bare light bulbs instead of hand-blown glass and I usually use a lot of gold etc and I wanted instead for this exhibition to have it be more about the idea and more about this like unexpected quiver and have the materials look quite modest so it's kind of like the experience is where the specialness comes in or the luxury comes in. It was quite exciting to have the opportunity and um, in a way think about myself as the client as opposed to homeowners, (laughs) yeah. And in other news then, 
your studio is in New York, Manhattan, and now you've actually launched another one as well on the West Coast, Los Angeles. Why and what kind of a move is that for you? Yeah, it's been nice to open this this space. We use it for fabrication. Um, it's a really large studio downtown LA in the Arts District, and it was the idea was really pitched to me by two of my employees that wanted to head that up. And um, you know, I immediately my heart kind of jumped at the idea. So that's what I paid attention to. And then we did a lot of looking into things, and it started to really make sense. So. I like the idea that there's so many different things happening in LA than there are in New York. Um, a lot of like cross-pollination of industries, a lot of music and film overlap with fashion and food and in a way that I think that um, happens in New York, but it's a little bit more with an agenda in New York. And what's happening in LA seems to be pretty open-ended and that feels good to be a part of that. As well as just downtown LA, there's like very few distractions. It's like people can actually really focus on their work and the space is just so light-filled. You know, the light's just streaming in from the windows. It's, it, it feels completely different. It feels like, I mean, the studio looks like a fake factory, to be honest. It's like so clean, so white, really beautiful. And I think that our clients who are LA-based will enjoy coming to see the process, um, just like we let them visit in New York. So I think that's going to be nice to connect with our with our clients in a new way. That was New York-based lighting designer Lindsay Adelman talking about her vibrating chandelier you can see at Nike's exhibition space on Via Orobia. And Rob, as you said earlier, this program's season has been way too short. From the Monocle team here at Via Orobia, it's ciao for now. There's just time left before today's show and our first season draws to a close. We're running through some timeless design picks from Monocle's editors on the show. Today is the turn of Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck, who explains why London's Royal College of Physicians building by Dennis Lasden is a design icon. For my pick, I've chosen a building in London, the Royal College of Physicians. As you enter Regent's Park from the south, just there, tucked on the right-hand side, is this amazing modernist building. It sits amongst all the stucco, all the white stucco of the Nash terraces that normally are associated with the ring road that runs around the edge of Regent's Park. But here, uh, in the late 50s, was commissioned a building that went up in the 60s. It's by Sir Dennis Lasden, who many now think of as the greatest kind of brutalist, modernist that maybe Britain has ever produced. He's also responsible, if you head to the National Theatre, for that building. He was a man who actually was appreciated in the end and whose buildings were understood, even though he came at a time when there were many concrete monstrosities going up that failed for poor quality and because people didn't really understand the material. I also like the fact that if you just walk across the park, on the other side of the park, there in the zoo are more modernist buildings, including Sir Hugh Casson's amazing building for the Elephant House, which are... I'm glad to say no longer houses any elephants. But back to the Royal College of Physicians, what's so extraordinary is it's big, it's solid, but at the front it looks like it's kind of balanced on almost like two tusks itself. There are two ribbons of concrete that run down to the ground. It has beautiful grounds at the back. 
It's a bit of a show-off of a building, because if you ever happen to be round the back of it, on a really slightly anonymous road, opposite a pub, you glance up and wonder what that black wall of brick is. That's the rear side of it. It shows all its beauty at the front. It's a real kind of a lion of a building with a, a main at the front and a, a rather squat back side. But inside, it also just works. It functions. He thought about what the building should do and while many modernists were decried for really having little sense about how their buildings would one day come to life he understood and he really kind of delivered something that even to this day people love and cherish so if you're ever jogging in the park heading in there on your bicycle take a glance to your right and admire that wonderful piece of modernity. That was Andrew Tuck there celebrating the Royal College of Physicians here in London. And that's all we have time for. What a week it's been in Milan. I've been Robert Bound and it's been my pleasure to keep you informed and on your toes all week during Salone del Mobile right here on The Rundown. The shows this week were produced by Tom Edwards and Toby Hammond and Marcus Hippie anchored our coverage from Milan. Special thanks as well go to Monocle's correspondent in the city, Ivan Carvalho, for all his great help. Find out more about The Rundown, about Nike and about Monocle at monocle.com. Thanks very much as ever for tuning in and happy running. <laughs>